Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we will be discussing Akira. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. Uh, okay, is it pronounced Akira or Akira? Um, I believe the the more Japanese pronunciation would be Akira. Okay. And then that's what I was wondering because I've heard it being said both ways. I've only heard more of the Western pronunciation of Akira. I think that's just how we would pronounce words in the West, but yeah. in the East, yeah. it would be more so Akira. So ever since I right. heard Akira, that is how I've tried to pronounce it. Do we ever hear Akira in the movie? I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. I don't think. I don't so. think so. Hmm. Anyways, this was, I believe, the first fully, like, well, I'm not counting Pokemon as a anime movie. I'm talking a theatrical anime movie. I believe I saw it before we saw the Cowboy Bebop movie together in theaters. Right. Which was awesome. Right. That was pretty, pretty good. And I saw Princess Mononoke in theaters, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw this before either of those. So this was my first... I didn't see it in theaters, unfortunately, but I believe this was my first anime theatrical movie I ever saw. Right. Well, it is kind of funny, though, because Akira is just now being re-released in the theaters. Uh, ah, I forget who the produ- the distribution company is, but it is going to be re-released in, Flex, I think, uh, Slack Cinemas. Uh, the one, there's one near me about, mm, in it's inner city Chicago, but they're showing it this weekend. Like the 22nd and the 24th or something like that. Wow. I'm not going to be there because it'd be Thanksgiving, of course. But yeah, uh, I didn't get to see this one in the theater. And I'm I'm kind of d- bummed out that I'm not going to be able to see it here. Uh, I can't remember what my first theatrical anime was. It may have. No, no. I think it may be this one too. The more I think about it. Because for the most part, I was just watching like the TV show anime, not really anything theatrical. So this may have been the first one that I can recall. I have since seen Grave of the Fireflies, Princess Motonoke, both in theaters with the Studio Ghibli re-releases. And I think that's it? In terms of theater? Oh yeah, and Cowboy Bebop, of course, too. Yes. I Well, I'm the one that showed you this movie. That's right. Yeah, we watched it in your theater room. Yeah, you came over. I had seen it. I don't remember how long of a gap it was between. I first saw this on Hulu, actually, mm-hmm. and I saw the dub on Hulu. And right. Because I'd always heard of this movie. I'd always heard it's amazing. You have to see it. I think the cover art is fairly famous. Right. It is. So I was like, Alan, you got to see this movie. So you came over and watched it. And... If my memory's correct, I think the first time you saw it, you just thought it was okay. See, I actually don't remember what my initial reaction was, but looking at the score that I had on IMDb, I gave it, at the time, an 8. So Maybe you had to think about it, because... Yeah, I, I think I think I remember that's what happened. I at first didn't really know what to think about it, which, I mean, when we get into it, maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. But at the time, of course... I hadn't been as big into anime as I am as I am now, um, but I think I just kind of sat on it, and eventually I kind of became to like it a bit more. Yeah, that that probably makes sense. I think I remember you being kind of uncertain. You're like, huh, I don't know. I'll have to give that some thought. 
And right. I thought the one other thing that you thought was it was too long. That's possible for the time that I thought that. Yeah, because I remember, don't worry, no spoilers, but it was um, when I thought I remember it being around the part where Tetsuo is sitting up on that trash heap like it's his throne in the underground bar. And I thought I remember it being around that time you were thinking, like you turned to me and you were like, this is, where's this going? This is a little long. Where where are we moving to? But that's all I remember. I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah. But anyways, Alan, clearly, he doesn't not like this movie. Yes, that is very, very true. <laughs> well, Alan, you want to give him a little background into Akira? Sure. So, okay. Originally, Akira was uh, only supposed to remain in manga. It wasn't really supposed to go anywhere outside of that. Uh, well, Manga's the, the book, company right? that... Yes, there is a the manga is more or less what we consider a comic here. Um, so what happened was the director uh, Kasuhiro, I'm sorry, that's a bad pronunciation, but uh, Otomo he was given a idea that perhaps it's possible that we can make this into a movie. Now originally he was kind of against this, but then he was told that they might be able to do this, and then he kind of got interested, and then of course it went on from there. But one of the issues they ran into was uh, this movie's going to take a a lot of money to make. And the settled budget was 1.1 billion yen for the time, which is around $9 million here. Um, which, even for animes, it, for the time, it was the most expensive anime really ever created. Now, to be fair, back in 88, anime was a relatively new thing. It had only been a, really the populace uh, for Japan, for Japan, for about a decade or so, it really wasn't anything what you would consider old. It isn't, it isn't as old as the American stuff, or really just film in general, when it comes to like live action stuff, uh, or even really the American animation with Disney. And at the time, with with America, we had really only seen animation from Disney. And so Japan had much different stuff over there. And so having this come up and having a really big budget... Um, kind of set a milestone, more or less. Anyways, the manga was set to be about 2,000 pages. At the time, it wasn't finished. And the director really had no idea how it was going to end up. Uh, so they kind of went their own ways, for the most part, there towards the end of the with the movie. Anyways, so the movie was also kind of notorious, I guess you could say, for cutting corners in production wherever it possibly could. For example, they pre-recorded audio before they did the animation, which is usually what you don't do. And then when it came to like lip syncing, their mouths were just kind of a basic up and down, not really matching the way that the lips formed in terms of the dialogue. So they tried to cut as many corners as they could to save as much money as possible. But even then, of course, the budget was still, uh, for the time, the largest ever, largest that there ever was. So anyways, around 1988, it released worldwide. Uh, now, in the US, it came out in a couple of theaters. I think I saw two. Uh, of course, it's now been re-released, I think, this would be the second or third time now that it's being re-released into theaters. But it released um, around summertime and did pretty well in the Japan box office. And when it came to the United States, it was more or less the thing that caused anime to start being shipped now to the West and the U.S. especially. 
because we had never really seen anything like this before. Typically, once again, animation was pretty much sectioned off to for kids. It's all done by Disney at this point. Not much is outside of that that really gains a bunch of money, especially. So seeing something like Akira is quite violent and shows that cartoons, more or less, can be made for adults was, one, quite jarring, but two, also somewhat revolutionary, once again, for here in the West. we never really seen anything like this before. And today, it's kind of built up this legacy as being one of the greatest anime ever created. It's, uh, of course, it's pulled inspiration uh, from 2001 and Space Odyssey and Blade Runner, but it's also caused other anime and other maybe even television series just in general that's ever been created has also, pulled, has also pulled inspiration off of Akira, namely Ghost in the Shell and Cowboy Bebop. So it's no surprise that uh, that Akira is has quite the legacy, not just in anime, but also kind of just in film uh, and just in general. And so in, in now, though, of course, with that, you have uh, big studio companies like Warner Bros. who want to make a live action adaptation of this. So in 2002, they bought the rights, the film rights to do some, something like that. And since then, nothing really has come of it. We have had it cycled through so many different directors. Christopher Nolan isn't one of them. It's gone through, okay, five directors and 10 writers so far. Uh, one of the biggest delays is they're just kind of afraid for whitewashing, which I know was a pretty big thing with the, uh, really with, I guess, Ghost in the Show with ScarJo and then kind of with Death Note, the new one that was, re- that was remade on Netflix. Uh, that was one of the issues, and then the other issue was it's just kind of hard to pull that Japan that that Japanese style and push it into a American style, namely because this movie does kind of reference a lot of World War II stuff in it that really only accounts towards Japan and not really towards America. So as of right now, it's kind of just in a lull. But in 2017, Otomo, the director himself, said that he really is done with Akira. He really wouldn't care if what other people would do to it at this point. He just wants it to be done if it is going to be done. Uh, and the last thing that we know is that it's kind of, its focus is now turned towards untapped teenage talent, more or less. So that's the background to Akira. It's rather interesting, actually. Well, this is the 30th anniversary since the release of Akira. Right. I have the 25th anniversary Blu-ray, which uh, has a nice slipcover and has some good special features and uh, multiple audio choices. So I do recommend picking that up, especially now that it's the 30th anniversary. And uh, some of the things that I remembered hearing about some of this background to it, I do actually remember hearing probably the late 2000s, Warner Brothers was really keen on adapting Akira into live action and for the front runner for who I assume would play uh, Kaneda, the iconic guy with the red jacket and pill on in Red Cycle, they wanted Zac Efron. Yeah, I heard about that. That was weird. That wasn't going over well from what I heard. And even I thought that Literally. was strange. I mean, yeah. this is after his high school musical career, Three, the three films had come out. And they wanted Zac Efron. I don't know where that came from. And yeah, that definitely would have been some uproarious, uh, frustrating uh, whitewashing for certain. Yeah. Um, and if you want to hear our thoughts on the recent whitewashing controversy, 
in Ghost in the Shell, you can hear that we did review that movie earlier this year. And recently I heard for the two directors they were possibly thinking of to direct the live-action Akira movie was, I think, first Taika Waititi, who did most notably Thor Ragnarok. And I watched an IGN review. They were asking him about what he would do for an Akira movie. And he he said he would cast a bunch of unknown Japanese young adults or youth. And he might actually do a good job with it. That would be interesting. It would be. I've seen, including Thor Ragnarok, I would have seen three of his movies. So I've seen Thor, uh, Boy, and What We Do in the Shadows. And typically, he's always edged more towards comedy, not really anything as visceral as Akira. So, hmm. That would be interesting to see. It would be a very different style for him. And the other uh, uh, guy they were talking about was possibly Jordan Peele. Who, for Mm. listeners who don't know, he recently did get out. He won the Oscar and it was pretty big at the Oscars. It's a horror film with a kind of a social commentary. And he's been known for comedy because he did Key and Peele on Comedy Central, but then he kind of surprised everyone with his directorial and writing debut with Get Out. Right. And now he's going to be a voice in Toy Story 4. So I don't know. I mean, he's clearly a capable writer and director, but I just, I never understood the leap from just because he did Get Out and got these Oscars. Then they're like, so Akira? It's like, how did you get that? Right. I I think I can see Jordan Peele a little bit more than Taika Waititi, but not by very much. Uh, hmm. That would be interesting if they was done in the similar style as uh, Get Out. I don't know how much it would work, but it'd be very interesting to see at the very least. Well, and the other thing that I thought of was you said the kind of director of this movie or creator of the manga basically mm-hmm. said they they're kind of hands off now it's okay do whatever you right. want with it at this point and that reminds me exactly of what Mamoru Oshi said who directed the 95 anime Ghost in the Shell and mm-hmm. there was a special feature of him where he was talking on the new live action Ghost in the Shell movie basically saying I am behind whatever they're doing I support them you know, I think Scarlett Johansson is great. I'm excited to see this movie. So that kind of made me think of what Mamoru Oshii said. And I mean, I like to hear that. I don't want to hear some bitter rivalry going on or some right. kind of right. clash of like, oh, I hate what they're doing, you know. So that kind right. of gives me a little hope that they would bring him on because he'd be willing to come on to a live action movie if they do that i'm still not convinced that's ever going to happen especially because ghost in the shell didn't go over that well and i heard ghost in the shell was kind of the the test uh afterwards they said this movie we'll see if we can adapt live action anime movies and it didn't do that well and we talked about it in that review but regardless if that's how they're going to adapt if that's how they would adapt akira then i don't want them to do that Right. And I think the biggest thing really that stands in their way is uh, it's 
more or less the fans of Akira and really anime in general. Um, because this is a very beloved anime. This is the thing that kind of kickstarted that craze here in the United States, more or less. So to have an American company make a American movie off of an anime that came out in the 80s that deals with things that really only Japanese kind of really should be dealing with because that's their stick. That's what happened to them. That's what they feel. It, of course, it's not really going to go over the well, go over very well unless they do something very, very smart with it. And once again, that's kind of the big thing that's kind of standing in their way. They don't really know how to get past that controversy, I guess, between the whitewashing and then the Japanese uh, ideals because of what happened in World War II. So it's still possible. I'll say that. It's not saying it's impossible. It's possible, but it's one of those things where just because you can do it, does that mean that you should? Once again, both A Ghost in the Shell and even Death Note, that's had a, a movie or a, a movie adaptation. Even Bleach has had a movie adaptation. And I think Full Metal Alchemist has two. Oh, on Netflix, those yeah. three. Um, haven't gone over very well. Uh, so maybe we'll see. This is just kind of stuck in production hell for, uh, oh gosh, 16 years now. And nothing really has come out of it. They've had a lot of people flying in and out. Really only time will tell with this. Although for right now, I'm not terribly excited Uh to get something like this because of what's what we've gotten in the past with different uh, American adaptations of anime. Yeah, I am not. I I would be completely fine if we never had a live ad- adaptation because we really don't need it. I think it's very possible that we could have some amazing cinematographer like Roger Deakins make this movie look gorgeous, but we would need some solid acting and story behind that uh, too, because that's, this movie does have a solid story and uh, it's super yeah. intriguing. So they just can't dumb it down. They just can't mess it right. up. I just hope they don't take the Disney mindset and adapt every single one of their animated movies into a more modern, uh, for a more, for a more modern audience with the live action. It works for Disney a bit more than it does anything else because one they made those movies and two they're remaking it for a future audience that is still in the american style more or less i would be okay if denis villeneuve and roger deakins made this movie (laughs) completely okay with that yes (laughs) Uh, see i could actually see denis villeneuve doing something like this i mean especially after uh arrival i would say that he could it would be something that he could do. And even believe it or 2049, I can see that he has an eye for this kind of stuff. It's possible that if he were on the helm, it would make it a bit more uh, capable of not being as controversial. Once again, as controversial, it was no matter which way you go with this, it's still going to be controversial for a lot of people. Well, Alan, you want to give them the plot for Akira? Yeah, let's do it. All right, listeners, before Alan gives you the plot, this is your spoiler warning. If you have not seen the movie Akira and you don't want it spoiled for you, then go ahead, click pause, go ahead and watch it, come back and click play, and we'll be here ready to talk about it. So once again, this is your spoiler warning. Go ahead and give him the plot, Alan. It's been 31 years since World War III. Tokyo was destroyed and rebuilt as Neo-Tokyo, a corrupt futuristic city where anti-government groups often start riots and cause terrorist attacks. Kaneda is a leader of a biker gang known as the Capsules. 
Along with his good friend Tetsuo and cohorts Yagamata and Kai, the capsules get into it with the rival game or the rival gang known as the Clowns as they chase each other to the, through the city. While this is happening, a ride is underway. Takashi is being escorted by a man named Ryu, and, Ata- and Takashi is what they would consider to be an esper, who is a part of a resistance group. After the escort is gunned down, Takashi is on the run and ends up in the middle of a highway right in the path of the two biker gangs. Tetsuo crashes into Takashi, demolishing his bike and hurting him in the process. The remaining members of the, cap- of the capsules catch up to Takashi and Tetsuo, but the army shows up to take them all in. Tetsuo is taken in for testing, while Kaneda and the rest of the capsules are sent their way to the police, and they take Kei along with them. Tetsuo escapes from the hospital and meets up with Kaori, his girlfriend. They steal Kaneda's bike and go to escape or run into the clowns once again. Kaneda comes out to rescue to rescue and regain his bike, but Tetsuo hallucinates, envisioning his gut spilling out. The CRC shows up and take Tetsuo away once again. Kaneda finds Kei Kei and joins and joins her group after overhearing their plan to kidnap Tetsuo. After Tetsuo is beginning to figure out his powers, he slowly degrades, becoming a moral ego, becoming an egomaniac and unstable. As he as he escapes from the hospital, leaving it a complete mess, he heads to the Olympic Stadium, where Akira is said to be. Kaneda follows the path of destruction to find Tetsuo, picking up a military gun in the process. Meanwhile, a cult is beginning to follow Tetsuo, claiming that he is the Lord Akira. Tetsuo plows up the capsule holding Akira and cracks it open, only to find that it is just the organs of Akira inside. The military fires at Tetsuo with a satellite, where Tetsuo and causes Tetsuo to lose his arm. He rebuilds it by taking mechanical mechanical parts in the area to reconstruct what he had lost. Back at the Olympic Stadium, Kaori shows up and finds Tetsuo moaning in pain. He sits on his throne with the remnants of Akira next to him. The doctors explain that the drugs that he took to take control of his powers will begin to wear off. A prediction that comes true once Kaneda and the Colonel and the three kids, uh, the three espers, show up uh, to stop him. Tetsuo's power completely overtakes him and transforms him into a giant, disgusting biological mass that consumes everything it touches and crushes Kaori. The three kids lose their power to resurrect Tetsu- to, re- to resurrect Akira and to stop Tetsuo. Akira starts another sig- another singularity, the same as he did in 1988. While inside the singularity, Kanada sees the remaining memories of Tetsuo. While we also see the origin of, of Akira, and we find that the children were trained before the destruction of Tokyo. Kaneda returns as the singularity disappears, leaving Neo-Tokyo flooded and destroyed. Kaneda meets up with Kai and Ki as they ride off into the sunset as we see circles in a red-eye form with the words, I am Tetsuo, as credits roll. So, as you can tell, it's quite the plot, especially for an anime. This is not your Snow White Disney. Right, and I even had to minimize quite a bit because I was writing out... uh, I was writing out things. I was like, this is going to take forever to explain if I try to get into too much detail. So I had to skip over a number of different things. It's quite a detailed plot when you really think about it. It it is, especially because we have quite a few characters that you have to. Yes, we do. You have to keep track of them. And we have a few different factions. I'm not talking about gang factions. I'm talking about we have this like secret agency that kind of runs neo tokyo but then you have right. this insurrection movement that's trying to infiltrate them and overthrow them and then you have those weird old looking kids and then you have kanada and tetsuo and they're against the other so it's a lot to keep track of it i can understand it being kind of overwhelming on your first view i would say for the first watch i would just more so take in 
the visuals and then on the second mm-hmm. watch then really dig into the story and what's going on because i i would say that's how it was for me i was so enthralled by the visuals especially in the opening biker chase scene that i was towards the end i'm like now what who and then upon my subsequent viewings i was able to track with everything a bit more and enjoy it all together as a cohesive piece of storytelling and art Right. And I would even say that I was probably the same way. That may have been why I was kind of apprehensive the first time I watched it. Because I didn't exactly know what to think, partly because it was there's a lot to take in with this movie. So I think that's the reason why I was so kind of, I don't know just yet when I first watched it, was because I was trying to pay attention to everything. And there's a lot here. Not to say that it isn't impossible, but at the time, I'm, I would say that I was rather immature when it comes to watching a movie and trying to take in all the kinds of different themes and stuff like that. So I think that's part of the issue that I had. Of course, now watching it, I think this would be my third time now seeing it. Um, I, it makes a lot more sense to me than it did way back in the day. And I think this story does a fairly good job. I would even say it does well at showing not telling except for two mm-hmm. exp- I think there's like two exposition scenes where it's just all of a sudden it's like well you know this and this is how it happened I'm specifically thinking of well it's when they're in like jail together towards the end and then she like mm-hmm. explains evolution to us essentially that yeah. was just kind of beneath this storytelling I felt where it's like really this movie's done such a great job of showing us these events and everything but without just being like well here's what happened december 16th 1941 this you know um but so those two scenes but otherwise i would say it's great with visual storytelling because we just open with may 16th 1988 it's regular tokyo and there's a nuclear explosion and we don't know why and then 31 years after world war three it says it's 2019 which is coming up on next year, and it's Neo Tokyo, and then we then they just drop us into this really amazing world that's familiar yet different. And I wanted to mention some of the visual styles that I saw of of the movie. I noticed a lot of uh, Frank Miller's Watchmen graphic novel, uh, just how the city looks, uh, dealing with nuclear explosions. Um, also, uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Right. And yeah, Blade Runner, we seem to talk about that movie a lot when it comes to both, I guess, both the anime that we've talked about, this one and Ghost in the Shell, have referenced Blade Runner or homage it in some kind of way they take off of its style, which to be fair, they are both rather cyberpunk in their styles anyways, so it makes a lot of sense. Because Blade Runner was rather influential and was the thing that caught that kickstarted the uh, cyberpunk genre more or less. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Now I haven't seen I have seen Watchmen, but I haven't seen uh, Brazil, and I really want to. But yeah, the biggest one for me was definitely Blade was definitely Blade Runner because of that cyberpunk style, and this movie looks great, and you can really tell. I mean, yeah, it's set in the future, and even though New Tokyo is a year away, which is totally isn't by today's standards. Uh, there is such a personality to this movie's style, partly because it is anime, and they usually put a big emphasis on the backgrounds. 
and uh, the designs and stuff like that. But this city feels very, very lived in. And it's kind of interesting that you have this idea that once after the first thing happened, which uh, were, so it's more of a representation of an of a atomic bomb going off. In reality, they're wondering if whatever happened was because of Akira or not. But for a while, there was a lot of peace. And then now it's kind of beginning to turn back to this more corrupted city. And there are big riots happening with anti-government groups. The place is falling apart, more or less. And I guess with Akira coming back in this movie, it's kind of meant to symbolize that a new fresh start is in order uh, for the city. Of course, there are other thematic elements going into that because you've also got the two the two bombs that we dropped during World War II on Japan, which was in Nagasaki and, Hi- and uh, Hiroshima. And that's a big thing with this movie because once I mentioned this in the opening, uh, with those two bombs we dropped, you can't really pull an American idea out of that and try and imp- incorporate that into your movie because for the Japanese, that's something that personally happened to them twice. And now they can make a movie off of that and because they know how they feel in that kind of an area. We don't. We can tell about how we thought up and dropped it. And in some ways, I would even say that Akira is kind of a critique, maybe, on our mindset about what, they, what, what, about what we did. Um, but either way, there's a, lot of very, there's a lot of visual storytelling in this movie, both with the two bombs, more or less, that we dropped or that were symbolized in this movie, but then you've also got uh, the doctor and how he represents all the scientists. You've got all kinds of stuff in here. I remember the first time I saw this opening biker fight, my jaw dropped, especially when they're going in through those tunnels. And it does, I think this movie does an amazing job, the animators do, of showing the scope of the city mm-hmm. and the them riding the bikes in comparison to that. And I think they can achieve that through animation because that they can't really do that just visually with the regular camera and the regular world because clearly this bridge is – the tunnel is super massive, for instance, and the city is super massive, more so than anything in real life. But they're trying to kind of depict this really larger-than-life world that has grown out of this – you know nuclear explosion and into the future uh it's it's just blossomed as you can see so but i just remember seeing that i'm like wow i've never seen something like this before but i loved it because uh, i've always uh i think they try and capture it in these new um city destruction type movies which we have like a bajillion of now uh, you know, yeah. Thanks, Roland. Yeah, Roland Emmerich, or even all the new superhero movies where they're in the middle of the city and it's you know being destroyed. They're trying to show this scope of it. I don't think any of them come to achieve it like Akira does, where it's just wow, that's amazing. Right, right. and yeah, this opening scene is r- a lot of fun. It's very high energy because for for one. Uh, they're riding bikes, and so they're going. Or they're already going really fast. But then you've also got the music, which is a lot of drums, a lot of banging on different instruments, which makes this movie's soundtrack so unique. And even that has spawned a lot of uh, homages and stuff like that off of it, because there, since this movie and its score, it's also a lot of bands have been wanting to kind of take this idea, and there's albums made of this. Uh, of things similar to it, a lot of electronica 
things like that. Uh, the score of this movie is, it, once again, I think we've, we talked about this in Ghost in the Shell. There is so unique to this movie. It's it, now Ghost in the Shell. I like to use a, a lot of Bulgarian harmonies. This one uses a lot of like different drums. Maybe even like they took tubs, like ten gallon tubs, and used those instead of a, instead of like a regular drum. There's a lot of different things that go into the score of this movie that I think really help sell this idea. It's kind of a gorilla, kind of gorilla-esque. Everything's kind of dirty, not really very pristine, no matter who is on, no matter who we're looking at in this movie. And I really, really enjoy that. That And one of the weapons that they have is this pipe that has a bunch of nuts and bolts screwed into the end of it that they use as a weapon. There's like a lot of different things that they, that, that they use to to symbolize a more of a um, symbolize a more dirty style of this movie nothing here is really perfect even though you would assume that after they had to rebuild that it would be pristine and now it's so far in the future that that's not even true anymore right it's like everybody has essentially devolved because right it's just a bunch of fighting like they're all these early neolithic cavemen with their factions fighting each other and um i guess you could draw kind of a parallel to 2001 with the dawn of man sequence in the beginning where they are using Mm -hmm. bones or kind of clubs like they are now to brutally fight each other in their little factions and uh we also should mention here in the beginning that we have this uh guy running with this what appears to be this extremely old looking kid and right. the guy is just shot to smithereens and the kid uh there's a really great scene where the kid i don't know he sends off some telekinetic blast and all this glass starts falling and that's a really gorgeous shot right. of the glass like falling in slow motion and so i encourage you listeners to watch this on the biggest screen possible because it's just a visual feast and also the sound in this movie is great oh yeah yeah absolutely i would have I would love to see this in the theater if I ever get the chance because this movie has, it not only looks great, but yeah, it sounds great. And just even the tone in general really sets out to make this really gritty story that nobody's really perfect in, in any sense of the way. Everyone really has a different mindset and there's kind of some right and time some wrong here, but nobody's really in the right necessarily. Um, and yeah, this opening, we kind of get, we get this short, short little uh, exposition that the kid and the man are trying to get to this man named Ryu, who we do get to see in this opening. And he's more or less trying to, uh, from what I understand, he's trying to get one of the kids out of there. He's trying to get them away from the government uh, because he's a part of a resistance group, him and him and Kai. Uh, they're both part of this resistance group. And that's why later on they go to try and save Tetsuo. Uh, possibly even to break down the government. This is a big thing that we find out even later with, I forget the guy's name, but he's like a mayor and he kind of is like a gopher there yeah, towards the end. Uh, there's a big emphasis on like the deconstruction of government here, which maybe is, is kind of a parallel to what Japan had to do after uh, after World War II was over. They kind of had to restructure everything when they when they were all, when it's all said and done. Kind of a similar thing here. Everything's just kind of, going away they have to do something with it one of those things is the government and society more or less ripping it to shreds right and i i saw this as a very sodom and gomorrah-esque society that is Mm -hmm. just so corrupt 
it has to be destroyed. It has to start over because this is a very postmodern film where our protagonists do a lot of bad things <laughs> and we see everybody do bad things and yeah, they are wanting to overthrow the government and it's like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? That's just where the postmodernism comes in, where everybody makes bad choices, but sometimes for the right reasons, and sometimes they make wrong choices, and they still think those are for the right reasons. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, it has a pretty deep worldview to it, I would say, with all of these characters making these real-life choices, and some are really unethical. The other thing I also saw was there's just this like brutal dehumanization. This movie is just kind of hyper-violent we see in the beginning with pe people getting oh, yeah. shot up, clubbed in the face, lots of blood everywhere. They're getting blown to smithereens. And I remember there's a scene in the beginning where they're checking one of the bikers that just drove off of the bridge because it wasn't finished or something. And they're like, is that Tetsuo or is that one of our guys? And they're like, no, it's not. No big deal. Somebody else. And uh, we come to find out, at first, I thought these were grownups. No, they're just kind of teenagers, I guess. They're in a trade school. They're high, yeah, they're high schoolers. They go to this yeah. trade school. And last night, they were murdering their rival gang and not even a thought of it. Uh, that just shows you how far the society has become dehumanized where they don't see that they don't see other people as humans they just see them as these people to destroy <laughs> overcome right exactly and i think one of the biggest things that really goes to show is there when the cult starts following tetsuo uh Mult I think there are two or three scenes where we see this, and every time we do we do see this cult following Tetsuo, uh, the group ends up dying in some kind of a way. One of the biggest examples is when they're crossing the bridge, and the and the military tries to stop Tetsuo, and Tetsuo destroys the bridge, and everybody who's following him falls into the water, and we see like the, more or less the leader, I guess, of this of this cult is trying to crawl up the bridge, that piece of bridge that's like that's being tilted, and a guy tries to grab him, and then they both fall in. Uh, there's a lot of death in this movie. And that's, once again, well, not once again, but it is referenced early on that this is going to happen. There's going to be a lot of a lot of human death and destruction what's about to come from one of the espers. I forget her name. Um, but we do we do see this, uh, or we do get to hear about this, and then, of course, it comes, it comes true later on. Yeah, especially when Tetsuo gains his powers of the, I guess, telekinetic powers, we do get to see a lot of death of the city. Um, not just when it blows up and they have to rebuild again, but also when he's just walking through trying to get to a to, to get to Akira in the Olympic Stadium. Yeah, I mean the amount of destruction in this movie is like Old Testament biblical proportions, where mm -hmm. just entire cities or structures or places are just completely destroyed in this grand fashion and everyone right. dies it doesn't matter yeah I've, i found that to be a really fascinating scene also where soldiers and worshipers are thrown into the river and they die and right um i don't know if they're this uh tetsuo seems to be like a very vengeful god where he doesn't really care about anybody and he doesn't care if he has worshipers or not it's not really about that it's basically just about his uh greed and desire for control and power and um destroying those mm -hmm. and i think this movie we'll we'll get into it and talk about it more 
but I believe the movie does a really great job of showing these consequences of this humanistic greed of desiring and controlling ultimate power, and it leads to pretty much everybody's downfall who has desired that kind right. of power. Right, and th that's the thing that I found, and probably even why people thought I liked it so much, but this is the thing I found the mo to be the most interesting, is Tetsuo himself, he even says that, yeah, I've just been bullied my entire life, more or less, and he's just kind of tired of Kaneda always being there, to save him from any situation he gets himself into. He wants to do things himself. We see this come true. Uh, we really see the anger and kind of even foreshadowing there towards the end when uh, he escapes the hospital and tries to take Kaori away and then gets stopped by the the clowns. And he, uh, well, kind of comes to save him. But when they do get there, he's beaten a snot out of a guy and almost kills him and kind of has to stop him and say, don't do that, you're going to kill him. And then uh, after that, Tetsuo is just like, just essentially just screams at him and says, I'm tired of always having to be saved by you. I want to do this. I want to do things my way. You get this glimpse into what's going to come uh, a little bit later with this one scene here where you can tell he's just kind of losing control with this guy. And then right after this, he has those hallucinations of like his guts spilling out and you hear the name Akira being said to him in different flashes and things like that that are happening. And the CRC comes. Uh, they pick him up. You can right away. You can say you can kind of pick up that okay, something bad is really going to happen with Tetsuo, uh, and sounds like he's going to lose control, which does end up happening, of course. And also fairly early on in the movie, we learn of this colonel and scientist, and they pretty much just there's a bit of a mystery at first because they're saying Tetsuo's like wave pattern is the key to solving the pattern of Akira's growth process or whatever but then right after that they say that, um, they're meddling with the power of god we have no choice but to grasp that power and learn to control it and we see they failed they failed in 1988 and they fail in 2019 they can't grasp it and control it just like tetsuo tries but he can't and uh i think that's this kind of hubris of these all of these characters that are involved with it is uh whether you want to call it the tower of babel or um the what was the guy's name who flew too close to the sun oh i can't remember all right you know who i'm talking about <laughs> yeah i know who you're talking about so it's kind of one of those things where you you got too close to the sun you you built it up too high and you're trying to grasp something that just can't be that way uh, this these humans think they you know there is no god whatever we we can create god essentially they felt like with these kids they could evolve them to the next stage of humanity and then create these you know humanistic gods and control them and we see that fails every time so early on in the movie we we see that they're pretty much setting themselves up for failure again because they're saying, hey, I don't know if we should meddle with this. And they're like, but I know we can do it again this time. It'll work this time. And it doesn't. Right. And even for a more like recent example of this, uh, this is really no surprise, but is the bomb, the atomic bomb, I would say this is what they're kind of referencing here is, yeah, you can create this, but is it even a good idea? And even now, we know for a fact that we have weapons that are many, 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 many times more powerful than the two bombs that we dropped in World War II. 
many times more powerful. And so even with, a, once again, a more recent example of something like this that is even a scare in today's day and age is these nuclear weapons that we definitely can create. Uh, yes, we can create it, but should we even be meddling with that kind of a power? Uh, for the long, for a number of years, we had the Cold War with Cuba and different com- and different countries where we could have a nuclear fallout really at any moment. Now, of course, that's kind of blown over, but the fear is still there. And this movie, I think, does a really good job at saying and warning that, hey, if you take control of this and actually start utilizing it, it's going to be a very bad thing. And we see that through the we see that through Neo Tokyo as essentially it dis- it gets destroyed by Akira for the second time here towards the end. Um, we and we get a lot of conversations. In one conversation in particular, the scientist is trying to figure out. Okay, so the colonel tells the scientist that if it gets out of hand, pull the plug and stop it immediately. Which the scientist totally doesn't do there towards the end, and the colonel gets after him for it when he comes in and sees that this pattern between Akira and Tetsuo are more or less forming together. Um, he we find out that the, that the doctor had an ample opportunity at ample ample opportunities to stop this and didn't. And he wanted to see how far can it go? How how much more can we do with this instead of doing what the more, I guess, morally and ethical idea would be, which was be which would be to stop it, which he didn't. It kind of goes towards maybe even the American mindset of, okay, was it even a good idea to bring these weapons into, uh, the, po- into uh, the idea that we could even use something like this? Because now you may have this power, but how often are you going to control it when you know that you can get more or less get what you want uh, just by throwing these around or something like that? And I think that just speaks to the nature of humanity mm-hmm. where enough is never enough and whether that be through materialism or power. And in this case, <clears throat> it seems more so uh, of a power drive, Yeah, uh, just a hunger for ultimate power because they're saying that humanity will eventually evolve beyond what we are now and that's basically what they're doing they're trying to pull this energy out of these kids and it seems like they achieve that because these kids are very powerful and they're weird they're weird looking kids Uh, i think it's a great design though and it's really it makes you wonder what what is going on with these you know floating telekinetic type kids but they're basically saying we can evolve them further and of course I think a recent movie example that we've reviewed would be the Indiana Jones films, mm-hmm. where there's always some sacred object that they believe will give them this ultimate power. <clears throat> but in the end, it's always their downfall, as usual. Right. Right. And yeah, and I love the, this idea or this even this imagery of the kids who have this telekinetic power are kids. And the guy who really controls the powers of Akira, more or less, is a teenager who's a com- who's completely unstable. It it goes to show that when we're dealing with this kind of a thing, we're kind of like children in the in the sandbox. We don't really know what to do with it, so we just do whatever we think we that we think that works. Which, come to find out, especially with Tetsuo's case, uh, that ends very very badly. So I like this idea that it's a lot of higher ups con- more or less controlling these kids and Tetsu- we're trying to control Tetsuo. Uh, and they're just kids. They don't really know what they're doing. 
uh, and even though they seem very, very smart there in the opening, uh, you it's the imagery that counts. They don't really know how to control this power. Once again, this is also brought up with Tetsuo. He doesn't know how he doesn't really know how to control his power. And at one point, the doctor says that if you push it too hard, bad things will happen. Uh, your powers are not mature yet, and Tetsuo just takes it and just runs with it. Yeah, and we even see the kids use intimidation and mm-hmm. fear through toys. They right. Uh, make these giant scary toys which i thought was a great scene it was really creative because it's like where what right where's this coming from and then you kind of realize why and they even live in what is it called the baby room yeah it's the room is called the baby room Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah and it's it's this really kind of fantastical um filled with castles and lots of toys Mm -hmm. and this tree in the middle and it's all in a very dim setting uh, which kind of lends to show like, you know, you think of a baby room as something kind of bright and happy, but you see this has become this kind of dim and they're just like these age shadows of what they used to be because right. we do see a flashback of them as younger kids. And uh, I think that's a great job of kind of showing how they've taken this childhood innocence and just really kind of demolished it in this way. They've just kind of perverted it almost. Mm-hmm. And I do love that towards the end, uh, Tetsuo, he puts on a red cape as if he's Superman or something, just going to show the mindset of, I'm a superhero now. And we see when he was a kid, the kids kind of bullied him and took away his toys, you know, possibly a superhero figure. Uh, It's very likely because the kids love, you know, superheroes. And we see Kim kind of saying like you know i'll show you now i'm the real superhero that can destroy all of you (laughs) right so he's a very scary hero but it does capture that uh that innocence very Mm -hmm. well and how it's just gone completely awry right and i I even love this image of the yeah the stuffed animals that come alive more or less and then they start leaking milk and then uh and then tetsuo like falls into the floor uh, as if it's water, and the milk just kind of starts layering over it. Such an interesting visual, of course. Then they they all disappear. It's a hallucination. A hallucination. But yeah, milk in this is also kind of maybe even meant towards fertility, uh, taking care of a baby from a woman's breast or something like that. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of innocence being innocence being played here with a lot of different things, and how we don't really know what we're doing with this kind of power. I do want to mention this movie isn't all completely serious. There's a few moments yeah. that are lighthearted because I actually laughed uh, in a couple scenes, particularly towards the beginning where uh, Canada is there. Um, okay, they're on the bridge towards the beginning and the government comes and they like kick Canada and his fr- and he like falls onto his friend. Oh, yeah. And his friend is like holding up Canada's body on top of his and he's like, he's heavy. Yeah. That was so funny. And also when they are at the Olympic Stadium, which is kind of this makeshift interrogation area for just insurrection revolutionary type people. And we see Canada has parted his hair and he's just like, what a sweetheart, you know, what a good kid who would never be murdering people in a bicycle gang. And the scene is hilarious and they're talking about, oh, my mother was sick and thankfully she cleared the hump. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that does add a lot of depth to these characters. And I wouldn't be surprised if they drew a little bit from uh, West Side Story where there are these gangs that are 
bloodthirsty honestly and then when the when the police come you know they're just as sweet as can be mm-hmm. and uh, i'm sure that's kind of a common trope anyway but i did get a little bit of a west side story vibe but just much grungier right right and one of my favorite lines is when uh when Kanye calls the one of the police officers old man and the guy goes old man don't you know I'm 23 and I haven't even been married yet it's all there are so many especially in this opening there's so many funny lines here uh that are that are being spewed out and we kind of need that for this movie because it gets rather serious there towards the end um and really gruesome uh without the and I feel like without this comic relief here at the beginning it would be way too brooding uh especially when we get at the very end with with uh, Tetsuo and him being over consumed by his own power. Uh, other than that, yeah, this comedy is really funny uh, for this movie, especially. Yeah, and it was another funny scene where they're in front of like the principal and the gym teacher and he's like, are you listening to me? And he said, I lost you halfway through, <laughs> sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> discipline, discipline. Discipline, yeah. That's a good scene, I will too. Say, <laughs> right, and but I will say not long after this, I am shocked because I think it just goes more towards the brutality of it, where uh, Kaori is uh, Tetsuo's girlfriend is cornered by these bikers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might be the clowns. I'm not sure. I think they are. Yes, the clowns. And they rip her shirt open, so it's really humiliating. And they they like kick her, I think, and then punch her, and that's a really hard scene to watch because she's pretty young right to see her you know being treated like in such a horrible shameful way uh yeah it it gets hard to watch right and this kind of goes to show why this movie even was so influential at the time especially in america uh once again this is a very adult movie and cartoons usually are very not adult they're very kid friendly this is the complete opposite and so seeing this this level of violence and then you've also got a little bit of nudity in here uh Mm -hmm. yeah this is not anything for your little kid to be watching. This is very much meant for adults only, more or less. Uh, yes. It does have an R rating for good reason. But oh, yes. but yeah, this is a very visceral scene, especially when we get Kaori involved. Yeah, and then Tetsuo comes and beats the mm-hmm. snot out of the guy and to the point where, surprisingly, Kanada jumps in. I mean, they're just watching it like, yeah, this is what gangs do. We just beat the other person to a pulp. Right. But yeah, if you couldn't tell already into this movie, it's not your average cartoon. No, <laughs> no. The people do explode. One notable example is when they try to put Tetsuo back in his room and he just rips the doctor to shreds and pieces oh. of body are just falling from the ceiling. Uh, towards the end, when uh, Kaori is essentially crushed by Tetsuo, there's a lot of a lot of destruction and the human body just kind of being ripped to shreds in this movie. Oh, it's gross. Yeah. Yeah. And it's meant to be very gross. It's meant to be very shocking. I think this movie features kind of an interesting spirituality to it. It's almost like this uh, human humanism mixed with spirituality because uh, towards the beginning here, it's I don't know if it's the beginning. It's maybe close to halfway through. Uh, Kyoko, the girl of the three of the old kids, uh, she said she had this dream of crumbling, and she said the three of us will get to meet Akira again. And three is kind of a uh, you know representative of the Trinity and other things of that sort. 
But then they speak of Akira like almost like the second coming. Mm-hmm. Like he came once and now he's going to come back again. And uh, we do get a kind of a scene like that where he comes back at this perfect time. It's kind of the end of the world, essentially, to make everything new, you could say, which you could see him kind of as a Christ figure in that sort of a way. I'm not sure if they're really going for that, but I'm just saying you could possibly see that on more of a spiritual aspect. But then they also talk about, and we get this from uh, Kay, but she's being, but Kyoko is basically controlling Kay. She's speaking through her and she's talking about how Akira is ultimate energy. He's ultimate power and he's the the next or final stage of human evolution um so that's interesting and she's she's <laughs> i thought it was funny when uh, kanada says you're talking crazy and he says so akira is an amoeba yeah because she just mentioned that uh it's kind of like an amoeba just kind of consuming everything and he's like uh Akira's an amoeba? It's a very it's a pretty funny scene, but I would even say that yeah, this spirituality that's brought up is in very Japanese, which makes of course makes a lot of sense. Right. Especially when she's talking about how we all have this kind of power uh inside mm-hmm. of us that Akira has. Uh the the uh, the religious aspects of this movie are very Japanese, where we where we all kind of morph from one thing, we all have this certain energy inside of us. Uh yeah, the religion is very Japanese. Uh, but yeah, there are, to a certain extent, some Christian-like themes in here. Once again, Akira kind of being uh, this, kind of being like a Jesus figure, where he's gonna, where he's coming back. Or later on, one of the lines is brought up. Uh, it's really quick, but one of the cult followers, or one of the, so this cult is like worshiping. Uh, they're worshiping Tetsuo. And they know that they call him Lord Akira is going back. But then one guy comes up and says, no, he's not. He's a false prophet. And then is immediately taken down. Yeah. Uh, almost as if he's, sing- almost as if Tetsuo is being signified as like an antichrist kind of figure here. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. He is kind of this false prophet. Um, and that's kind of, it kind of did make me think of um, kind of in the New Testament, how Jesus was this very radical figure that shook up society kind of like, how Tetsuo is doing now, not with violence, of course. Right. But many people would say, oh, he's like Elijah kind of reincarnated, come back, or he's uh, John the Baptist. They said he has a lot of different things. And that kind of makes me think of this movie where they're saying uh, many people thought Jesus was a false prophet and many still think this today. Right. Um, we're not here to discuss that. But uh, nevertheless, this kind of does play into this there's some kind of messiah that will kind of retransform or renew the world whether that's tetsuo tetsuo seems to be this more antichrist figure and akira is more of the good figure although towards the end there it seems like tetsuo is just kind of absorbed into all of them and forgiven and i'm not sure if that's this kind of universalist message of everything will be just just kind of reborn or reincarnated and you know whether it's negative or positive it'll be re- refurnished or something it gets pretty deep there at the end with what it's trying to say and do especially with that final i am tetsua which i'm not sure if they're trying to tie that to the hebrew god who's 
said that I am. That's how he described himself in the Old Testament. I don't know. It gets pretty thick there. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And it's interesting that a movie that's filled with so much action as this one is, and it's very visceral, has uh, quite a deep uh, lore, I guess you could say, to it. Not just in terms of the religious aspect, although that is a big part of it, but like everything else that goes into this in terms of this display of power and how we can and how it can easily consume us and all things, all, all kinds of stuff like that. It's, it's interesting that this movie is still a fun kind of action movie to watch but at the same time knows what it's dealing with and doesn't shy away from talking about a lot of different things when it comes to power and how it can be very corruptible and things of that nature that's one thing i think i found just in general found just so interesting about akira is that it does not really shy away from a lot of things it really does tries to explore a number of different aspects religion is one of them uh, in terms of worshipping this, more or less the apocalypse when it comes to uh, Lord Akira, as they as they called him, and, and things like that. And then, of course, everything's reborn once again when Akira steps in and then uh, does the sing- has the singularity again there at the very end. And if you have seen Star Wars, and this sounds a tiny bit similar, because they say Akira's power is found within everyone, and then in Star Wars... The Force is essentially found within every living thing, and it, as Yoda says, surrounds us and binds us, and it's in the tree, and it's in us. That is, once again, very Eastern Mm -hmm. um, thought process of religion and spirituality. And so, yeah, Star Wars, that's what I was thinking of, because when they said that, I typed the Force? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is very, once again, this is, the religion here is more leaning more towards the Eastern uh, views of it. Uh, Which would make sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because this is from Japan, so mm-hmm. obviously. But I would even say that as even as we're talking there, you can even pull out some more Christian aspects of it too, which may or may not have been intentional. I don't really know. Um, but either way, either one is very, very interesting to me and something that I find so fascinating. This is the reason why I just love anime in general is because you get such creative stories out of ideas that you would never have thought of. And maybe that's just due to the culture that they have. Uh, something that we are very different at very over here in the West. So it is interesting to me too, that uh, they are building an Olympic stadium. Uh, it, it's mentioned, or I think there's a sign or something like that. At one point, this is 147 days to the Olympics and the Olympic stadium is almost finished. It's getting pretty close but I think it's very, very interesting that they brought up the Olympics around this time because usually, well, okay, not usually, but the Olympics is meant to be something where the world just kind of comes together. They forget all the grievances that all the grievances that they have, and they just participate in sports and to come out and see who really is the best of whatever. You know, it's it's a symbol of kind of unity of the of, with the world more or less, and if that is no more akin to the logo that they have the uh what is it seven rings um that are all connected and you see tetsuo build a throw i guess the throne's already there but he sits upon a throne that has those rings on it with the pieces of akira sitting right next to him uh as he as he sits around his throne and then it, it's so it's such an interesting shot that they have or even an inter- interesting visual with this because it's meant to be the unity of the world and the only thing that tetsuo is doing is the complete opposite of that 
Oh yeah. No, that's a great shot and a great scene. Mm-hmm. And um so once again, this is probably a good example of when the movie shows us instead of telling us right. uh what's going on. And yeah, you bring up a good point how a lot of this, especially towards the latter half, revolves around the Olympic Stadium, which is supposed to be countries put aside their differences, usually every country that can participate is allowed to participate for the most part. And we do get this unity, but in this grand scale, this more so spiritual scale where that is the the start. That's like the uh, inception point of when it all begins. Right. Where Tetsuwa is essentially self-destructs and the three kids, they like pray to Akira or something to come back. And he does. He like appears in this white light and... Yeah, then the white light just like grows from there, and then it just absorbs everything essentially. Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, did did you find any material that specifically said this was took a bit of inspiration from two thousand one? Uh, the only thing that really said that would have been the week the would have been the wiki page for this. It mentions that two thousand one is a big. Uh, influence for this movie which i i would say towards the end especially the last thing that we see is very 2001-esque uh in terms of visuals at least uh here kind of uh i can see that but i would say that its inspiration is rather loose come when you compare it to say blade runner or something like that yeah i mean many people see 2001 as a movie about human evolution from these hominids to this super being which this is kind of that uh narrative you know as well mm-hmm. and akira is kind of i guess you could kind of see him as this as the star child which is the the rebirth of it all right um okay well we could talk a little bit about um the voice acting we both listened to the english dub and right. i thought it was great it was really well done just like ghost in the shell is well done and the cowboy bebop is well done also Right, yeah. For the most part, I would say that this voice acting, which is honestly a little bit surprising because English dubs for anime typically aren't great. It's You see this more with uh, like a TV show than you would with a, with a feature-length movie. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, this voice acting is pretty much, it's pretty fine for the most part. It's it, Nothing really is terribly wrong with it. You really don't get much bad voice acting. Uh Really, the only issue that really exists with this is some of the, uh, I guess, the way that the the words are animated. Sometimes, a couple of times, characters will overlap with their dialogue uh, because that's just how they was when they recorded it in the Japanese. Uh, If you weren't really looking for it, you might skip over it. But there are a couple of moments where two characters kind of overlapped their dialogue. Uh, This happens because timing between Japanese and English is very different. Uh, especially in animation. That's one of the small issues that I had with it. Other than that, it's really passable. My favorite voices were the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, they, yeah, those are pretty good. It was weird because they sounded like kids, but yet they almost didn't sound like kids because their voices seemed... Their voices just had this maturity yet immaturity. Right to it as if they were past puberty yet not so i thought those were probably the most interesting and unique choices and those were uh really well done uh because it's it's weird it's odd but they did a great job with those voices 
Mm -hmm. Really, all the voices here, I say, do are really, really well done for the most part. Uh, there is a couple of times where the voice acting is a little bit flat, and perhaps that's just due to the translation um, that they were given. But once again, for the most part, it's pretty much fine. There's really nothing wrong with it, which is a really good thing compared to a lot of other anime that don't have good voice acting. One of the things that I was surprised about towards the end of the movie was that Akira, it, okay, they go and open up the Akira capsule buried deep under the Olympic Stadium. Mm -hmm. And I, I had seen this movie twice. This was my third time seeing it. And I did not remember what was in there. I was expecting, I don't know, some person, something, but it wasn't. It was just organs. That right. I, that surprised me. Right. Yeah. I remember, I actually forgot about that too, that they, that it was just organs. It kind of just goes to show that uh, the thing that Tetsuo wanted doesn't really exist the way that he thinks it does. And uh, now, of course, they do kind of use those organs a bit later on and they resurrect or call on Akira to come back. Um, but yeah, it, it just kind of goes to show here that it's not necessarily that Tetsuo for him is not what he was wanting. He was wanting a, 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 some kind of person like he was, like what he looks like, but that's not the case. It's just a bunch of organs. Right. And Tetsuo even says Akira never existed in the mm -hmm. first place. Come to find out that's not true. Right. And I know that there's at least one line that's mentioned here or early on where they think that Akira was the one who was the one who caused the singularity, the explosion in the beginning, but right. they don't really have much evidence. This, of course, is kind of proven to us uh, a bit later on. Yeah, and it kind of plays with our expectations of what we think Akira is, Yeah, because that's a big mystery, and we don't really know what he is, except that he's ultimate energy, he's super powerful. What does that look like? And so when Tetsuo is disillusioned by, he's thinking he's going to like open up Akira from this cryogenic chamber or something. And I thought that too. And then it's not, it's just organs, which makes you think that, oh, maybe he never existed. Like, and it's kind of interesting because his organs are kind of preserved like, uh, like a fossil. They're almost fossilized in a way. So we know of these ancient creatures from fossils, just like they're saying, oh, we study fossils, and they're saying, well, we kept Akira's organs to study them as well, and come to find out, <clears throat> Akira is not this more so physical uh, thing. He's he has probably achieved this transcendence into this spiritual realm where he can come back and reset the world right. when it needs to. Right, and once again, that's very christian-like uh especially from our western views here uh to have somebody come back and more or less reset the world and things of that nature a bit more western once again if that was their intent or not that is something that you can draw a parallel to uh once again yeah and this is something that i really and also what the scene that happens right after this where tetsuo just completely loses all control and more or less he grows and starts 
I guess it's, it's a, the thing is, it's very hard to explain what exactly he grows into. It's kind of this biological mess that just spills out from his body and just kind of consumes everything. And I was sitting there trying to type in this into my notes and it's like, how do I explain what this is? Because one, it's so creative uh, to come up with something like this. Like how, like who, how would you even come up with something like this? But at the same time, it's just so disgusting and gross to see something like this come out of a person and consume everything that it's just like how do you explain what this is the face looks like a baby yeah like a that's gross. kind of what i got too is that it, it's in the shape of a baby but it's so malformed that especially when he grows farther and farther and farther it's hard to tell if even if he even is human anymore yeah he doesn't really become human at all because there are things growing out of him that mm-hmm. aren't human. I mean, they almost look cellular. Like if you look at the cell and you see what like a riboplasm <laughs> nucleus right. looks like, whatever it's called, it looks like some of those are like growing out of him. So it's almost as if because uh, we get we talk earlier about amoebas and cells and how humans have evolved from the tiniest little of things into what they are now. And it seems like Tetsuo did become the superhuman, and now he's kind of reverted to this mass of gobbledygook cells. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's very akin to an amoeba, too, because it just kind of consumes everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, very akin to an amoeba. And in one could even draw the parallel to maybe even some kind of cancer, because it just grows and grows and grows and doesn't stop, and just kind of consumes everything that it touches. And at one point, you even see Kaori's caught up in all of this and uh Kanade is too and Tetsuo was and Tetsuo was like screaming in pain save Kaori save Kaori and then he crushes her uh he kills the one thing that he really I guess he loved more or less other than Kanuda uh it's it's still quite heartbreaking but at the same time you see how the power that he has maybe even due to the drugs that he stopped taking because they do mention early on before the scene that uh if he stops taking those dr- those drugs that control his power he will lose control completely um, but you get this image of this guy who's just growing and growing and growing. He can't stop. And maybe even the biggest symbol of him not being a human anymore is when this begins, you see this human flesh like rip as the organs or whatever is inside of him kind of breaks through that whatever shell of a human was even there in the first place. We have a kind of a contrast, kind of a duel here because we have this all-consuming light of Akira that is growing, and then we have this physical matter that is also consuming. One seems to be a good thing, Akira's, is to kind of, uh, you know, rebirth, whereas uh, Tetsuo's is just this, just this destruction, like, just, just, yeah. um, it's just degradation, it's gross, and it's not going to make anything better. It's just this perversion has run amok and um, this, and I guess you could even say show it's the kind of the, the pinnacle of how, um, how horrible humanity has become. We could say Tetsuwa has, he's just the culmination of everything that is wrong with the world and right. it's not going to stop growing and destroying everything until there is some higher power that is pure and good that will stop that. And 
we get remorse from Tetsuo. I think Tetsuo has redemption here because at the beginning, he's not remorseful. He's kind of this kid that's been pushed too far, and now he's going to push back and show everybody. But then he says, wait a minute, I didn't want Kaori to die. He doesn't want Kaneda to die. And he's... We get a much different side because he goes from arrogance to remorse so i think that's a good character arc for tetsuo yeah and it definitely is and it's we also of course akira is comes back and saves the day but we also get to see where kandida and tetsuo's friendship began and like as he's kind of flying through the singularity and things are just kind of flying past some different buildings stuff like that you get to see two different memories one of them is with uh tetsuo as he just got beaten up and he's washing his face and drinking fountain and kind of approaches him and says, is this yours? And hands him a toy and talks about how those kids are just kind of jerks. Um, and then later you get to see the origin of their friendship. And then after that kind of, gets to see the vision of how the three kids got to where they were. They were more or less lab rats for, to a certain extent. And you get to see Akira has, he messes around with his power and distorts the image on the screen and then eventually makes the TV explode. Um, maybe even going to signify that he's going, that he was the one that caused the singularity or the explosion or whatever it was in the opening back in 1988. And we kind of get the answer to that here after this scene. So yeah, very interesting stuff. Very interesting visuals that they have here. There are a number of times where things just kind of go silent in this movie and just kind of show you a lot, a lot of different things. And I really, really enjoy that. Now, of course, there is some music in these in these parts, but there's still silence nonetheless. Yeah, I, I do love these flashbacks. I do love they took the time to insert them because I think it adds a lot more depth to the story and to these characters. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad they didn't leave them out. And I think it goes to show that... In a way, like the meek will inherit the earth. That's kind of a classic saying that we've all heard before. Because earlier earlier on, we saw the government officials uh, are basically these nihilists who believe in nothing except their own power. When they see their power is challenged and the world is falling apart, they go into the bathroom and you know slit their wrists in the tub and commit suicide. Um, that's just a very nihilistic worldview and the people that wanted power don't get it and these young kids which i can't help but think of um when jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these you know uh, let them come to me i I, maybe that's another uh kind of a universal thought within the eastern religion as well i don't know i don't know it that well but regardless, we do see these young kids who were the outcasts. And even um, – I do think this movie draws great parallels. Well, I should say the story draws great parallels um, throughout the whole movie between the three kids and Akira and then also the uh, Kaneda and his gang because we know they were orphans. They were outcasts. Society didn't want them. And these three kids were also um, – I, I don't know if they were orphans or not, but they were at least taken by the government and put into this facility, and they've pretty much been outcasts as well because they've had to they're, – they're the best-kept government secret that they said until one of them is able to escape and break loose, which triggers essentially the, the end of the world or at least the end of Tokyo, Neo-Tokyo as it seems. But it does a great job of 
comparing those characters, bringing them, bringing their storylines together, and then having this overarching um, kind of message of how these kids will inherit this true life, whereas the adult government officials are just these nihilists who would rather kill themselves than accept anything more powerful than them. Right. And even, I guess one thing I forgot to mention earlier, especially when it comes to those officials, at one moment, there's a scene when the colonel is called in and more or less his position is questioned between the, all the officials that are there. But it's a, kind of a funny scene, but also one that's uh, also a bit scary, in term, at, least, at least in terms of the movie, is because it begins it begins rather normal, nothing really out of the ordinary. But as the scene goes along, these different guys that are there that are part of the government start fighting for no reason at all. One guy calls him an old man and the old guy says, and the, the guy who's been called this stands up and says, who said that? And then next thing you know, they're in the background fighting. And then there are two other guys in the background fighting. One guy's falling asleep while they're having this entire meeting. And then it ends, even though the Colonel came there to ask for funding to control what Tetsuo is or to control the three kids in fear that it will become something more than they can handle. The situation turns and it comes to we're questioning your authority colonel we're going to set you in front of an inquiry and we're going to have you questioned about what your role is and he just stands up and walks out it's clear here that the officials that are kind of in charge of this whole thing are really self uh they're really they really only care about themselves more or less they really only care about making themselves look good especially when it comes to one of the two guys that are fighting in the background when they're when one of them calls them names um and then later on, you get the, I can't remember if he's in mayor or not, but it's the guy that Ryu works for. We see him as Ryu comes in and he's trying to stuff his suitcase and trying to get out of there because they know that the colonel has ordered them to take out all of the officials and essentially he's going to reset the government through the colonel's command. Um, even even resist being arrested at one point when he's trying to load up an el- into a helicopter. And you see this guy running off into the alleyway and then has a heart attack and dies and loses everything that he had. Every, all the papers, all the bonds and all the money that was in his suitcase fly away. And Ryu walks past him, walks to the end of the alleyway and then falls and dies himself after being shot by him. It's such an interesting visual as like this, once again, this like destruction or this, uh, this bringing down of the government, this, I guess you could even say the corrupt government too. Yeah. And I think that's a great scene of, you know, all is vanity, essentially, where he's doing mm-hmm. his best to stuff as much money into a suitcase as he can, even though he's about to die. And then he goes and uh, kind of in this twist of fate, it's not any external forces that kill him. It's his own body that attacks yeah. him and he dies. And we see all of the money and everything go flying off and it's all pointless. Nobody, nobody cares about the money. They're trying to run for their lives. Uh, great scene. And... Also, yeah, where you were talking about how they it escalates really quickly in that meeting where they're about to bring out the fisticuffs and duke it out. I think that's probably them kind of showing uh, how silly uh, some of those governments are. If you can go and look it up and mostly in the Eastern countries um, in some of the Asian countries I know, and especially in the Middle East and even in a few European countries, just open up YouTube and type it in like parliament fist fights and fist fights break out all the time in their governments. It's really sad and it's really silly. And I think that's what this movie is trying to show is 
this is how the government works. It's really silly. Right. Ultimately, it's who's the strongest, not who's the smartest. And we see the general just enact a coup, just all on his own authority. He's like, you know what? No, I'm just going to overthrow the entire government and I'm going to become a dictator and take over completely. And it all fails. They all die. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. do good anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many interesting visuals. Now, to be fair, there is quite a bit in this movie, too. Uh, just really everything in general. But this is one of the more interesting bits that I just really enjoyed is just seeing that the government is, it falls apart. Not, kind of by their own doing as well, but also because they themselves maybe have even gotten consumed by this power that they have, that they really don't, aren't even taking care of the matters that are really at hand, which is the, which is the, which is Akira, which we are coming to believe, and especially in that one scene. It's, yeah, very, very interesting visuals and ideas are being thrown around here, just in general. So if I'm not mistaken, and I wanted to see if you got this as well, I don't remember his name, that gopher guy who has the heart attack. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ryu comes to him, and so we can see that this guy within the government was working with the resistance also. Is that right? Yes, there was a scene early on where they were having a conversation, the gopher mayor and Ryu. They were having a short conversation. It's really early on when this happened. Okay, see, but I thought he was having that conversation with the colonel, but he was having it with Ryu. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Ryu and the Colonel do look rather similar. Yeah, see, that's that's one thing about this movie that I wish they would have probably done a little bit better was have a better delineation with a few of the character designs yeah. because once in a while they look so similar. I'm, and then even Ryu looks like one other guy that he's working with. I thought mm -hmm. where I'm like, wait a second here, the yeah. and even I I thought um Kaneda and K looked a yes. little similar as well, especially when they both wear red. Yes, I was just about to say that, that both of them look very similar. Really, the only delineation between them is Kay has brown hair and some slight highlighting on the, above the eye. Other yeah. than that, they look very, very similar. So that got a little confusing there when I was like, wait a minute. And especially because I had a little bit of uh, trouble with the gopher guy being within fairly early on in the first act. And then I thought we don't even see him until the end of the third act there. Do we get him any other times in between? Because that just felt like a big connection that we had to reestablish after the whole movie. Right. Um. So I know that he has the conversation with Ryu at the very, towards the very beginning. So no, I think the only two times that we see him are the two times that you mentioned there at the beginning and then there at the end when he runs off. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I don't know how they could have fit that into the second act because the second act is pretty heavy mm -hmm. between Tetsuo trying to escape and them trying to break in and them dealing with this and that. But I felt like that would have probably been a better tie, like a better through line with that because there's multiple uh, plots and subplots within this movie. Right. And and yeah, maybe they could have had a short scene just to remind us that the mayor exists because there's a long time between the two times we see him. Uh, there really isn't much there. So I completely forgot that he was there. And one, when I watched it the first time, uh, I was like, who is this? I thought he was a brand new character for a minute. And then I remembered that he was in the beginning. Yeah, maybe there could have been something in the beginning. But also, to be fair, his character is... Uh, not necessarily shallow or weak, but as one that isn't as important as the other characters. Right. He is very simple. 
he than really anybody else. Yeah. So at the very least, it's not hard to understand why he's here, but he is one that you could easily forget about if you're not paying too much attention to it. Right. I think they could have done a better job of solidifying his connections. Yeah. A little bit better because there's, like I said, multiple factions, multiple sides, and he's connected with both, if I'm not mistaken. That was what kind of threw me off is just making sure that he really was with both. So, but that's really the only thing with it. Otherwise, I think the story is fairly easy to track with and that's not even that big of a deal. Right, right. Uh, there's one shot that I wondered if you thought of this as well. It's a, Oh, it's a gorgeous shot of Tetsuwa is standing in profile, full body shot, where it's kind of like dusk. You know, it's kind of like twilight when the sun is setting. And it's when he's like, he's standing on top of rubble and he's like reforming his arm, his new arm. I thought of Christopher Nolan's shot of Batman standing on top yeah. of rubble in profile. Um, and they both have capes. I'm like, okay, Christopher Nolan watched Akira last night before he <laughs> shot that scene. <laughs> yeah, they they do both look very similar. Uh, yeah. yeah, I do remember that. I do know what you're talking about. Uh, they do both look very similar. Uh, both great shots, of course. Uh, but I, I think that they both also convey different meanings as well. But still, they are very similar. I wonder if that was a ho- if that was something that he wanted a homage or something that he took inspiration from. Well, and you even said that he was considered to direct the live action movie. Right, right. So it's possible. It's very possible that that could be the reason why. And then at the very end here, we have what they think might be the birth of the universe, at least the power of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was interesting to me. It It's essentially a bunch of circles and ends with an eye and something in the shape of an eye and then the I am Tetsuo line, and then roll credits. Uh, it's very, very interesting visually, but I was finding it a bit hard to understand what exactly is going on here. Yeah, and we have two lines that are repeated uh, twice. It says, but someday we ought to be able to because mm-hmm. it has already begun. And I guess the way that I took that as saying we aren't fully evolved or powerful enough now to kind of control this or to maybe not have this happen. You know, maybe I I would not be surprised at all because we know the matrix took off of uh, ghost in the shell. And then with matrix reloaded, I'm sure some of these ideas of reloading the world probably came from Akira. So I guess that's probably the way that I took it was how Someday we ought to be able to either control this or be beyond these petty squabbles um, or just these, you know, Neolithic fighting. Because you could see the world, despite it being 2019, it's worse than ever. It's tribal fighting like, you know, never before, like a really long time ago. Um, And they say it's already begun, which makes me think that evolution has begun now that like human evolution has begun after this event this is the event that the second coming triggered this better evolution and i guess we see that kaneda and k and i don't remember they have one other friend with them they they seemed like they're going to be better people now hopefully right right i'm yeah i'm kind of with you on this one uh perhaps it is that they'll eventually be able to 
realize that you shouldn't be messing with this power or that maybe this time there will be true peace within the world. Uh, maybe not there yet, but eventually it is possible. It's very, very possible that we can get to that. Uh, there could be a number of different readings of this. And yeah, I definitely would agree with what you had to say. Maybe you went out onto it saying maybe it's also about peace as well, that maybe eventually we'll have true peace. Uh, maybe not today, but eventually it has already begun that we're making this process to get to that point. And of course, large portions of Neo-Tokyo are submerged in water, which mm -hmm. is obviously uh, there are many early flood creation stories, whether that be uh, with Gilgamesh, the story of Gilgamesh in the deluge or Noah in the old Testament, when God floods right. the earth, because the earth has become so corrupt, you have to start over. This is kind of taking off of those ancient uh, flood deluge stories to show that a nuclear bomb happened and now we have to, and then the earth is flooded and that, that won't be livable now either. They're going to restart again. Right, yeah, I thought I, th I thought that the the water in this is basically makes this visual unmistakable that it is a symbol of rebirth and that the that humanity or whatever whatever is left of this world is basically gone. They got they got to start from scratch again. This will be the third time they have to do it. Yeah, definitely, this is something that a visual that is more hearkening towards those stories of of rebuilding from scratch uh, when things got flooded and were wiped out. And of course, water is a symbol of life giving. So, yeah, I mean, this, this visual, of course, does akin to uh, rebuilding, more or less. And it's funny because I completely forgot. The very last thing that I wrote here is channeling lots of Kubrick here. Yep. Yeah, this is, this is where, especially this ending, this is where I feel it is mo the, more, the most 2001-y. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. 2001 is a, probably the best movie of showing and not telling. Mm -hmm. and yes, yes. <laughs> yeah and i think this does as well and uh, yeah it's like an eye and we also like i said it, it does make me think of kubrick but also it makes me think of the more recent under the skin with scarlett johansson with the opening shot of the eye and i don't know eyes are apparently really interesting i guess <laughs> to right depict here Right. But it also didn't look just like an eye to me. It also kind of looked like um, their wave patterns. I can see that, yeah. yeah from like a top-down view. Mm -hmm. I, I would also say that it maybe even harkens back to the opening because in the opening, when after you see the bomb go off or whatever, uh, you do get, do get to see like this red connection thing to this island or whatever, and then it fades in, and then you see it's a city. Yeah. And this one, it's, it's also still red, but there is more circles in this one. So maybe it's even harking back to that. Uh, that opening there. I also thought of that opening as it, to me, it looked like a cell almost. Yeah. How yeah. you would look, how would you look at a cell through a microscope and it would kind of look similar to that as well. So maybe that's what they're trying to see. And, you know, cities have of course been compared to cells or vice versa and the nucleus of the city and whatnot. So, right. Right. So Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Akira? Yeah, I I mean, <laughs> Akira is a gorgeous looking movie. Uh, that is something that I will never not say about this. Uh, even though they had to pull some quick tricks with the editing or maybe, you know, with the with the animation, you really can't tell. It, it is a bit dated. I'll give it that much. 
but it still holds up very, very well. Some of the animation here is gorgeous to look at, especially when it comes to the destruction of the city. It is so, so good to look at. And this is something that I I said that I was going to try and buy the Blu-ray last podcast. Uh, I haven't got it yet. Uh, I By the time I had the chance to get it, it would have been 15 bucks on Amazon, but wouldn't have been here by the time we would have recorded. And it was 18 bucks at Best Buy. So I decided I'd wait. Uh, maybe I'll pick it up after Thanksgiving. Maybe even for Black Friday. But either way, Akira's a gorgeous to look at. It has a lot of... It's got a really hard lesson about this... This... And owning this power that is so beyond what we can actually control that it ends up destroying us in the end. It's very akin to what we did to Japan back in World War II when we dropped those two bombs to stop war. So we dropped the two bombs and stopped the war. Uh, and then, of course, you've also got... Uh, how we see Tetsuo and his power as he tries to do so many things that he wants to do, but then doesn't realize the extent to which his power goes to. And then you've got the doctor who doesn't stop it when he needs to. And then you've got the colonel who essentially tears down the government with his own hands uh, to rebuild it because he knows how corrupt it is. Nobody's really in the right in this movie in really any sense of the word, except for maybe even a, the the god they say is Akira in this, where who just who shows up to start over again it's and it's so interesting to see that it's kind of also got this big theme of human uh, history because it kind of repeats itself um and the ending line is maybe not in the line is that someday we ought to but we're not there yet it was only just begun signifying that eventually we'll get out of this maybe this endless loop that we've kind of gotten ourselves into as history repeating itself Either way, Akira is, yeah, a great anime and really a great film in general. No wonder it's topped so many different lists and has such a legacy, uh, especially here in the West, after being ported over. Something that back at the time would have been in so interesting to see because of how different it was and how it showed that cartoons don't just have to be for adults. Uh, or Cartoons don't just have to be for kids. It can be for adults, too. Yeah, Akira, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend it. It is very visceral, very hard to watch, but it's also something that teach that has a lot to say and does, such, does, and does that in such a, a great style. Uh, 8 out of 10, high recommend. Akira, when I first saw it, just blew me away with its visual storytelling and also its visual style. This film has some of the most unique visuals in a film I've ever seen before. I love them, and for that reason alone, I would come back to this movie to be dropped in this world because I think it has some of the best world building without actually going in and explaining it. It's just such a lived-in world that feels so realistic that you could come in and it really sucks you into the movie and into the uh, world of Akira, of, of Neo Tokyo 2019. So for that reason alone, I found this movie to just be extremely engaging and enthralling. I love the visuals. But also the storytelling is really unique. I There's really not many stories, um, maybe even none that I can think of, that take this route at least for such a unique story and one that especially really doesn't spoon feed you. I do feel like in one or two scenes, the kind of the worldview of either the Japanese society or the filmmakers is uh, it shines through really heavily because they essentially spell it out. So I do wish they, I mean, it's fine if they put that worldview in there. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it. I just think they could have been more subtle about it through that writing. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Akira, despite it drawing from some uh, kind of ancient storytelling 
through the flood and through uh, rebirth and um, power and, you know, this uh, getting close to the sun, Tower of Babel, things like that. It kind of brings those really ancient ideas and refreshes them in a really modern way while still taking this old approach of like these this tribal fighting and this kind of like God among them to fix uh, things, but it doesn't fix things yet. It does regardless. It's really unique how it brings that story approach to it. So uh, Akira is an extremely impressive film. It does have some great English dubbing and I am looking forward to hearing the uh, Japanese uh, voice acting as well. I usually prefer to listen to the Japanese first, but I only got to listen to the English, but I am looking forward to that. And uh, I would be interested to see the manga and see how it compares and whatnot. But Akira is just a great film and probably one of the best um, animated films, or more specifically anime films, ever made. I'm giving Akira 9 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. And I'm very excited because next week we're going to talk about your name. And I've always seen it once, but I'm really curious to see what my thoughts are coming back. And I'm really curious to know what you think seeing it for the first time. Yeah, I don't know a single thing about this movie except it's been really well regarded. Mm-hmm. And I do know some other reviewers who uh, really liked it, but I don't know a thing about this movie. I even stayed away from reading the synopsis on the Netflix DVD. I, I kind of like really wanted to glance at it and I did, but I don't remember anything that I saw. And right. so I don't know. I'm, I'm going into this movie completely fresh, completely um, with an open mind, and I'm really excited to see another great anime movie, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious to see what my thoughts are on it. There is, a, okay, so I found this out while doing a little bit of research, some pre-research for this movie. Apparently there is, no, okay, there are a manga and a light novel adaptation of this, and they all came out at the exact same time. The novel, the manga, and the movie came out at relatively the exact same time. So I was wondering to see if, Oh, is there something that was made? I mean, the origin of the movie or the origin of uh, where I could find it, they all came out at the same time. There's a novelization of the film and there's a manga adaptation of the film. But from what I understand, they all came out and they're all they're all the same thing. Uh, so maybe I'll try and read one of those before we get to before we get to review it. Uh, either way, it'll be an interesting conversation to have uh, because once again, these two anime are two that have been rather influential to anime here in the West. Uh, of course, more so Akira than Your Name, but Your Name still had a very big following behind it when it came out. Yes, I'm really interested to learn more about that movie, to watch it, and we will be giving you our thoughts on Your Name next week. And then I believe the week after that, we will be resuming our Bogart retrospective series. Yep. Yeah, we will. So I'm really looking forward to that. We've got one of my favorites coming up right after this of the Bogart movies that I'm really excited to talk about. It's one of his best regarded, aside from Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon, which are both highly regarded. So the three that we've reviewed. (laughs) Yep, pretty much. So listeners, once again, thank you for joining us on our Akira review. Uh, If you're new to the movie, we hope that we turned you on to seeing it or or even helped you appreciate it more. We would like to hear your thoughts in the comments below. So uh, go ahead and comment and tell us what you thought. 
And if you're returning to Akira for the 10th time, then we uh, also want to know what you think of the movie as well. You're a seasoned veteran seeing this movie, and uh, maybe you noticed some stuff that we didn't, so we'd love to talk about that with you. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. If you liked this review and you want more people to hear it, then go ahead and share it with your friends and family. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date to hear some more great anime reviews. We have other anime movie reviews in the archives from earlier this year that you can go and check out. Also, if you enjoyed this review, uh, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That really does help us in the rankings so more people can find this and enjoy uh, listening to Silver Screen Guide and discussing with us as well. And if you want to help us out, if you want this podcast to stay free, you want us to keep the lights on and you don't want to hear a bunch of ads every you know five seconds, then right in the in the description below, it's really easy to find. Just click on Support Silver Screen Guide, and just for the price of a cup of coffee, and it can be a one-time donation. Um, for that, you can get bonus podcasts, bonus movie reviews, episode commentaries. You, we, you can do Q&As and ask us anything. You'll know our thoughts on the latest movie news and the latest movie trailers. You'll get all of that and more for a very low price, and it helps us continue to produce this podcast. That money doesn't go into our pockets. That money goes into bettering the podcast, to paying for the servers and bandwidth and storage, all of those things that do cost money. It really does help. So, And you get some great content that's yours to keep forever. If you stop donating, that doesn't mean your content is going away. It means what you paid for, you'll get to keep. And we hope you enjoy that content as well and you get to interact with us on a deeper way than you would normally get to otherwise so once again alan thank you for joining me on our akira review yep i'm glad to be here and we will be coming back to you next week with your name period and then the week after that we will be coming back with some more great bogart reviews and also our christmas special miracle on 34th street the very original really looking forward to that listeners alan i've seen it a bunch Alan's brand new to it. Yep. I'm excited to see it because I haven't seen it all and everyone talks about it. So Great iconic Christmas movie. We can't wait to bring you that review here very soon. We hope that you all have a good Thanksgiving. And, well, I guess by the time this is out, they've already celebrated. So we hope you had a good Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, you have a good Hanukkah, Christmas, whatever you celebrate. We hope you have a good time with all of those with friends and family. So thanks again, listeners, and we'll catch you next time.